This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I'm joined today by Will Bushman, back in the saddle. I'm bringing my A-game. <laughs> I think in job security. Jo- yeah, I'm a little Laura. nervous, yeah. <laughs> Laura was getting a lot of compliments, so I just got to... I worked a little bit harder on this one than normal, so I think we're ready. All right, cool. Oh, uh, So we are jumping into Exodus chapter 4, and this is a pretty wild chapter. And I, I have my own kind of leanings as to what's going on in this chapter, and it's it's a little different than the way that I've always heard it, especially kind of the Sunday school version. But I think Moses, as we come into chapter four, is dealing with a lot of resentment to ministry, resentment toward God. I think the, that he has harbored a lot of stuff for a long time, and you see that come out in this chapter, which is kind of surprising because. You know, when you when you find him, you see God sparing him as a baby, and God's favor is on him, and you see him, you know, kill the Egyptians, so he's clearly on the Hebrew side, and then God appears to him at the burning bush, and you just, you get the sense, okay, well, he, they must be really close. Like, Moses and God must be really close if God is, you know, <laughs> of all people, he's not picking any of the Hebrews that are still in slavery, he's coming all the way to the land of Midian, to Jethro's son-in-law, who's tending sheep for 40 years, and he decides to appear to him and be like, hey, I'm going to use you to bring about the greatest deliverance of the entire Old Testament. You're going to be my guy. And then Exodus 4, you just it kind of compounds on what you already started seeing a little bit of in Exodus 3, where you know Moses has got all kinds of like, well, you know, who am I? And you know, I'm not sure that I'm the guy. When you get into Exodus 4, you, you really begin to see that Moses is just not interested and going on any kind of mission for God. And you, you, it starts filling in some narrative points where you're going to see real hurt that has to have been there uh, for Moses. And so hopefully, if you've been burned by ministry, which is to say, if you've ever done ministry, <laughs> you've probably been burned by it, and it's been hard because the flock of God has sharp claws and, and, and sharp teeth, and sometimes it's really hard to to do ministry, then, you know, I hope that this chapter speaks to you. Yeah, it's one of those chapters that you forget how much life Moses has lived, and it's easy to see him just as a character and not as a real person. Mm-hmm. Like to think, I mean, we're only on chapter four, and a lot of life of Moses has been lived. Yeah. A lot of hurts, a lot of things, especially because we know the end of all of this, mm-hmm. so it is hard to read it kind of not thinking way ahead that this is going to be awesome and deliverance and all yeah. that. So, yeah, the vast majority of Moses' life, you know, he's he's 80 years into a 120-year lifespan. And we're, you know, we just finished three chapters, and the entire body of Moses' work from Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy still to come, that's all in the last 40 years of his life. And yet, all of the pain, everything he's learned, everything he's experienced, all of those memories that are stored up, you know, he's got 80 years, you know, looking back and and so what do we what do we know already well we know 
that when he killed the Egyptian, the Hebrews somehow knew it, saw it, and then Pharaoh wants to kill Moses because he learns about it, which means that the Hebrews, I think, the text doesn't tell you this, but I think that's the only explanation for this. How does Pharaoh come to find out that Moses was trying to lead an insurrection? Well, the Israelites told on him. So even as he's trying to free them, even as he's trying to do something for them and putting himself really exposed at great risk, the Israelites turn on him and go to Pharaoh and put his life in danger to where Moses now has to flee. He has spent 40 years having gone from a prince of Egypt with what seemed like a really bright life with tons of opportunity and and wonderful, you know, luxuries and everything else in front of him. Now he's out in the the Midianite wilderness with sheep um, for 40 years. And so you got to think, like, what his experience in trying to help the Hebrew people has not been a pleasant one, you know, and it has cost him a lot. And so now God is coming back to him being like, hey, I got a mission for you. You know those people that caused your life to fall apart at the seams? And, and who betrayed you and went to Pharaoh and told on you and, you know, put a death warrant over your head for the last 40 years. Yeah, I want you to go love them. And, and that makes Moses out of the gates very Christ-like because it's, it's not, you know, there's not a neutrality here. It's not like he's looking at the Israelites being like, eh, you know, they're all right. No, they hurt him. And yet he's still being called to sacrifice his own interest to lay down his pride, to lay down all of the wounding, to lay down the fact that they, in some sense, were his enemies and go back for their good, for their deliverance. Entirely selfless. Like, what does he get out of this? You know, he's comfortable <laughs> as a shepherd out in, in Midian, and God is saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make your life really uncomfortable in a mission to go rescue people who turned against you. Ouch. Yeah, I think that reading of it makes a lot of sense because we get to chapter four and it seems like either Moses is like the most insecure human being ever created mm-hmm. or there is tons of baggage that we don't always look into. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great way to just jump into the text because the first verse of chapter four, which is we're in Exodus chapter four today, is picking up on something that God promised him in chapter three. And so God comes and says, hey, you're going to go to the people of Israel. You're going you're gonna to talk to the elders you're going to tell them all the things that I'm doing for you. And in verse 18 of chapter 3, God tells Moses, so listen to this, they will listen to your voice, right? So this is going to happen. So verse 1 of chapter 4 is Moses answering God, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. So God has just said, the sky is blue, and Moses says, but what if the sky is not blue? You know, he doesn't trust God. There's, there's a, in fact, God, God, God could not have been clearer, they are going to listen to your voice, and that's the precise thing that Moses questions him on. No, they're not. They're not going to listen to me. And I think there's a lot, of, speaking personally, there's a lot of people in ministry that you know, God gives promises of what ministry is going to do and what it's going to look like, and then you have all of this baggage that you come to, and it's like, oh, that's not what I'm expecting to happen at all. <laughs> you know, I know these people. I know how hard they are to lead. I know what they can do to you and how badly they can hurt you, and I'm here to tell you, like, I know what you just said that it's going to be this way, but they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to my voice. They're, they're going to say, no, the Lord didn't appear to you. 
So Moses is coming at it with a total absence of faith. Yeah, and do you think, I don't know, it's obviously a, he's not trusting God for sure. But in his mind, there's no way that God could overcome their feelings about Moses. Yeah. Like in his mind, he's saying, there's no chance. Like me of all people, they're not going to listen to me. It's me, me, me. Yeah, completely. Yeah, he's, he's, he is walking off of his own experience, and what he's doing is he's trying to poo-poo God, you know, like, yeah. not me. Like, it's not going to happen. I'm, I'm not the guy. I don't, I desperately don't want this. The people have already proven, like, of all people, they don't like me. They, you know, when I tried to help them, they, they turned on me. So you want me to go? Like, they're not going to believe me, of all people. Um, and they're going to think I'm lying, you know, the Lord didn't appear to you. So right out of the gate, you have the, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And again, like this goes back to our commentary on Genesis. It's amazing that God continues to work with these people because they absolutely do not trust him, believe him, want to follow him. It feels like he's going, let me help you. Let me help you. And they're always like, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with you. Go away. You know, like, and yet God, in his mercy and grace and mission of salvation, it's like he's operating almost in spite of the faithlessness of his people. And as a pastor, like as much as I want to be faithful, I'm really glad that my God continues to operate through unfaithful people because let's be honest, like far too often that's exactly who we are. Yeah. So verse 2, the Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? And I love the fact that God doesn't go, all right, I'm done with you. <laughs> you know, like lightning bolt, you know, leave him in a pile of ash. God comes to him and says, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to work with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what you have in your hand, and I, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Like, you ready? Just the patience of God. Yeah, and he's not even, he doesn't even like rebuke Moses for that even, which right? is fascinating. He kind of just takes that like, I'm listening to you, I hear you, and I'm just going to show you. I'm not going to say like, Hey, don't say that. You're, you're wrong for this. You need to trust me. He's like, no, I'm just going to prove myself to you over and over again. And, th- and that's been like Moses has had all these kind of implied and, and objections like, who am I? You know, who are you? What's, what's your name? They're not going to, you know, every th- at every point where he's throwing up these doubts, God just keeps entertaining and answering his doubts very, very patiently. And here it's like, all right, Moses, what's that in your hand? And Moses said, a staff. Verse 3 He said, throw it on the ground, and he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But when the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail, so he put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And so here you have God who is is coming to Moses to show one that he's very powerful. Um, but also it's kind of like jolting. Like Moses has been comfortable in the non-supernatural for so long that God comes along and says, you know, you've had 80 years where you have yet to experience anything that's supernatural that you can relate to, that you've ever seen me do. So your your entire mindset is I've been trained to not expect the supernatural. And at year 80, God comes and says, watch this. Bam. And Moses is like, whoa, scared of it, like sees the snake. But there's there's something in us. Like, you know, I've I've lived 44 years. So old. 44? 44 years. It's bad when you start forgetting your own age. 
44 years, and it's like you you start to believe the natural naturalism. You know, what, yeah. what you see is what you get, and there's nothing that ever happens that's supernatural. And God's coming to Moses at 80 and breaking him of that, and Moses is freaked out. And then he says, now grab it, and it turns back into a staff. And he says, I'm doing this so that they'll believe. I'm going to give you the power to perform this sign. And what would have been extraordinarily special about that sign is what is what is a snake? What does it represent? Are we going like evil, Pharaoh? Uh, sure. All the above? Yeah. Satan? I mean, you go back to the garden. It's Genesis 3. You you think of the, the serpent is not... A just a just a random image here. It it has very much connotations to Pharaoh, who's marked by this. It goes back to Genesis three and the exile. The first time that the 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 people of God are exiled out of their homeland is because of a snake. Now they're exiled out of their homeland because of a guy marked by the snake. And he says, I want you to throw your staff on the ground. You're a shepherd, right? This is, this is the, the emblem of who you are. It's the shepherd, and I want you to throw it onto the ground, and it becomes the emblem of evil. It's the emblem of all the reasons why they're always exiled. That's, that's the role of the snake, is he wants you out of the presence of God, the place where there's paradise, and he wants you in a place that's enslaved. And so now the staff becomes the serpent. And he says, so this is the, the greater challenge of faith is Moses runs away. That's the smart thing to do. And God says, no, I want you to go over there and pick it up. I want you to confront the snake. I want you to go back and I want you to grab it by the tail. And when that happens, it turns back into a staff. W- what is God doing there? I mean, one, he's, he's showing, hey, I'm, I'm a God of the supernatural. I can do things that you can't explain. And I'm going to call you to do things that have no explanation. They won't make sense to you. But I want you to see I'm, I'm a God who can turn dead things to living things, and I'm a God who is sovereign enough that you, as a shepherd of your people, Moses, when you lay hold of the snake, it is disarmed. It's turned back into the shepherd's staff. And so there's transformation going on here. Do you see any other symbolism there? I think it's interesting that he's being given control over what evil looks like in their world. Mm. You know, that would be terrifying for Moses to step in the presence of Pharaoh, but here God is saying, okay, the same king that you're going to visit who has a serpent on his crown, like, look at what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. You're controlling a snake right now. Yep. So there's no fear there. It is, it's fascinating what, how God is doing this to train Moses' confidence because he knows that's, at bottom, Moses does not believe. He, he comes into the story with a lack of faith and God is giving him these little supernatural moments by which he can build his faith in the power of God. I mean, and God says in verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord has appeared to you. So God gives this as a symbol for Moses to demonstrate in front of the Hebrews, but it's also for Moses. Like Moses is doing this to be like, man, this really is the God of the supernatural appearing to me. Look at what he's doing. Like it's, it's building faith in him as well. And it's interesting that God decides to go this route instead of being like, hey, I'm going to go to the people. I'm going to tell them that I sent you. Right. Like he's allowing Moses to kind of gain that organic, natural leadership and confidence that he needs instead of just God kind of snow plowing the way. Obviously, God's given him access to these miraculous powers. Yeah, Moses would have much preferred the snow plow. Like, yeah. God, you just, you just go handle do it. You, you handle it. And yet there's something in the wrestling of not just the leader who has to go and preach, 
So Moses is being called to wrestle with the fact that he serves a supernatural God and he's on a supernatural mission. And he has to go through all the same wrestling, even though God is showing him these things. But God prefers that this messenger shows up and all of the people have to wrestle with it as well. I mean, there's, there's flavors of the supernatural thrown in, but you're going to see there's going to be a wrestling match between Moses and, and the Hebrews <laughs> for the rest of the Torah. You know, they're, they're never totally in lockstep and dancing well together. They're constantly back and forth at each other. And, you know, faith kind of weaves its way in there. And when the people have faith, things go well. And when they, when they grumble and they don't believe that God's going to provide or do, do them well, that's when they rebel against Moses. And Moses is like caught in the middle between God and the people and he's got to wrestle with that too. Like at some point, you just kind of want to be like, "Uncle, I'm out. Like I can't handle this." And Moses gets to that place. We'll see, you know, much later in the story, on a number of times. And so, there's three signs. That's sign number one. He throws down the staff. It becomes a snake, and he shows that he, you know, by God's power, he has mastery over the snake and can transform it into the emblem of a shepherd. Right? It's take it for what it's worth, but that might be a picture of you know, God descending to, to take on all of the, the wickedness of mankind to become, you know, as Jesus will say, like the snake lifted high on the standard, and yet by the power of God, even that snake is restored back to the shepherd's staff, which is the emblem of, of who Jesus is. Both of those are identities that Jesus takes on as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and the serpent on the staff and and John chapter three that has to be lifted high. So verse six, we get to the second symbol and it says, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And so pause there for a moment, because in the first thing, God is, God is saying, you know, I have power over the wicked. I can, I can transform from wicked back to, to strong and show that you have mastery over the serpent. So in the second one, this, this one would have been jarring to Moses. He says, I want you to take your hand and put it over your heart. And then Moses does that. He takes it out, and his hand is leprous. What in the world did God mean to communicate to Moses there? What do you think? I have my own theory. I have no idea. I mean, other than like a resurrection emblem, is this more like sure, leprosy's dead in their minds? Leprosy would have been I, crazy definitely because this is going to have another transformation. It goes, you know, from healthy to to awful, and then back to healthy. We'll see in a moment. But what, like in the ancient world, if and going through the scriptures, they had so many laws about infectious skin diseases. And the idea was like if you had an infectious skin disease or leprosy, which back in the in the ancient Hebrew was kind of this umbrella term for skin diseases, they were seen as being incredibly contagious. And so if you ever had one of these forms of leprosy or skin diseases, you had to go outside of the camp. You, you I mean, you you tore your clothes when anyone came near you. You had to yell out "unclean, unclean, unclean." You were basically divorced from society until a priest could come and examine you and say, okay, he's clean, he can be welcomed back into the flock. And the reason why they separated people was because skin diseases back in those days were so tremendously 
contagious. Like think of the nursery, you know, today or, or preschools with, you know, Empatigo or you know, all those kinds of things that when it's like shows up on one kid, all of a sudden it's all over the place, right? Same kind of thing, except more dire skin conditions that can really endanger your life and your, your health. So now, now think about this. His hand is placed where? Into his bosom, right? Inside of his... Sorry for using that word. No, I have a funny memory. Did you... <laughs> I have this weird memory of you using that word bosom. when you taught us this in school. Okay. And I, I still can't get past Abraham's bosom to this bosom. day. Yeah, whatever it was. Uh, I just remember that. I was like, oh, man. is this? I think this could have been the story, though. Was it? It could have been because I taught been. Exodus to your grade. I know, which is why I just have this a weird bosom. memory of you. Of thinner and with darker hair. Was, <laughs> so anyway, but back to the point. When you take your hand that's totally healthy and you put it near your heart and all of a sudden it becomes leprous, what is God communicating? There's something diseased about you and it's contagious. What is it? It's your heart. It's your heart. And I think that's what's going on here. So Moses is putting his hand near his heart, and it's like, wow, my heart is diseased. It's not just the serpent that we're going after. It's not just the evil. There's a, there's a deep evil inside me. And so in the call to Moses, it's like, yes, there's an evil outside of you that we need to confront. But also, when you put your hand near your heart, it is contagious, and now your hand is leprous. And so, but then... Where does it go? By the power of God. It says, then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And when he put his hand back inside the cloak, when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And so there's something behind the command of God, the word of God, that when he instructs Moses to do it again, it's restored. And so what does this mean? God has the power and mastery and sovereignty over the serpent, but God also has power and mastery over your health, over your heart, over the the broken nature of everything that's so contagious and in, in the uh, the infectious nature of of what's going on in your heart, and so there's the second sign, you know. And I, I think God is kind of setting up the bowling pins here, like it, the problem's not just them, Moses. The problem's also you. But I can transform both, you know, which is pretty awesome. Verse eight: If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter sign if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So what do you think is going on there? Is this him going after Egypt now? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it definitely is part of him going after Egypt. So... In the, in the ancient world, if you look at what the, the myths that the, the Egyptians believed about the Nile, they believed that Osiris, who's their god of resurrection, was, was chopped up by Isis and thrown into the Nile, and as the, the river flowed, it turned red. And that was from the floodwaters that would gather up some of the red clay in the south, and it would rush the waters forth to where by the time it got to Egypt, it would look red. And so the, the myth and ancient Egypt was that the Nile River was actually the blood of their god of resurrection. And so the Egyptians have that myth out there. But now it's saying you're going to take fresh water, clear water. You're going to scoop it out, and in my name you're going to pour it on dry ground, and it's going to become blood. It's not flowing from the south. I'm going to transform it right in front of their eyes, 
and then they will believe. So this would have been super powerful to the Egyptian culture, less so, I think, to the Hebrews. But when you're watching, you know, water turn to blood, and it's it's real blood, it's not just red water, this would have blown them away. Um, and one of the interesting things, uh, when you get to a, a document called the Ippawar Papyrus, it's actually called the Admonitions of Ippawar, he writes a century and a half or two after the Exodus, and he talks about how Egypt went into this great period where all of these plagues fell upon Egypt. And one of the things that he says is, is that Egypt was brought to ruin by he who poured water on dry ground. And that makes no sense. Like, you would never talk about, well, the great strategy of this military commander was he poured water on dry ground. Like, when you read Epiwar's Papyrus, you're like, what does that even mean? The only sense I can make is looking back at the Exodus. And so I think he's talking about what Moses does here, where he pours water on the dry ground, and that becomes the symbol that's going to launch this entire contest between Moses and Pharaoh that we see in the chapters to come. All right, so then beyond that, you have kind of the obvious symbolism that if God is preaching a series of sermons through object lessons, you know, sermon number one is, when you obey my command, you have mastery over the serpent. Okay, so it's the evil out there. So then that's, that's sermon number one. Sermon number two is, hey, Moses, your heart is contagious and diseased. And it will turn anything around it leprous, and it needs me to come alongside and transform it. And so it's not just the evil out there, it's the evil in here. Well, then when you get to the last one, the culminating thing, it's okay, well, where does what is water in the ancient world? It's the same as it is now. It's what you use for cleansing. It's what you use to quench thirst. It's what you use essentially for life and any culture throughout all of history stems from having water available. And what does God do? He says, no, blood. Blood is going to be the one that replaces that. It's going to be what satisfies you. It's going to be what cleanses you. The blood is going to be the the triumphant third sermon. And I don't know that Moses is picking this up, you know, but but we're on the other side of the cross and we get to see this. And I think, you know, the object lessons are there. I don't think they're just random. I don't think they're random signs that God is just like, eh, we're going to, you know, pull the tablecloth off the table without the dishes falling down. Like, I think he's, he doesn't waste his miracles. He's always teaching something with his miracles. And so when I look at it, I think that's, I think that's what he's communicating here. If not, it's, it's it works. It sounds good at least. <laughs> yeah, right. Moses not picking up on this, but... It, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think that he's picking up on it. For sure, I think he would have seen some of the Egyptian parallels. Yeah. Um, but on the other side of the cross, we get to see this, that, you know what, it, it's it's the blood that makes the transformation possible, and it brings cleansing and quenching of, of thirst and all that. So, so those are your three signs. And so Moses said to the Lord, because, you know, we're, we're working through all of the excuses still, so God does this, you know, the three object lessons, pretty supernatural. This should have given Moses a great sense of confidence and a boost of faith. But verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm, I'm not eloquent either in the past or, or since you've spoken to your servant, I, but I'm, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And so this is interesting because 
Sunday school version of this and everything that I've ever heard on this passage gives the the impression that Moses has a speech impediment or he stuttered. Have you always heard that? Yeah. Well, the the phrasing here where he says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue, it's literally, it's the same word that's used for, for glory. It's kaved. It's heavy. I'm heavy of tongue. And so that's where, understandably, like the, the commentators and translators say, okay, well, maybe he had a speech impediment. What does it mean to be heavy of tongue? He couldn't get his words out. Like, And so I've always thought that Moses had some kind of a speech impediment. So, But then, pause for a moment, and if you jump over to Acts chapter 7, it'll tell you that Moses had the best education in all of Egypt and that he was mighty in both word and deed. And so then it's like, okay, well, he's mighty in word. Is it just talking about the written word? Because that makes it sound like he's a great orator, that he communicates well, that he's you know very polished in his ability to speak and write and communicate. And I thought maybe we're mistranslating this. And so I went and I looked in the Bible for where where else it ever uses this kind of this heavy tongue idea. And it's only one other place that I could find, and it's in Ezekiel. And when God is calling Ezekiel to go into ministry, he says, you know, I'm not sending you to people who speak in foreign tongues or difficult language. And it's the same word. It's that heavy tongue, like a a difficult language to speak. And because he says, I'm sending you to Israel. I'm not sending you to a foreign language where you have to learn a new language and you're going to be heavy of tongue or slow of speech. And so then it was like, oh, that makes so much more sense to me. And then it started coming. My wife was a missionary for three and a half years in Ukraine 17 years ago, right? She came over here, met me, and gave up on the mission field. <laughs> bad Good bad one. call. <laughs> bad call. So anyway, but she spoke fluent Russian when she came back. She would disappear in Publixes all the time, and she would just be talking Russian, which was always cool to see. She'd find somebody speaking Russian, and she would just go talk to them, right? Well, it's been 17 years now, and in 17 years, she's lost some of the language. Like, she'll be on the phone with some of her friends that are still in Ukraine, and you can tell she'll come across an expression or something where she forgets how to say it. Well, Moses has been out of Egypt for 40 years. He has not seen, if they were speaking Hebrew, then he's not spoken Hebrew for 40 years. He's not spoken Egyptian for 40 years. The language had been lost. He's now you know, coming upon the Midianites. And so it made me wonder, like, I think what's going on here is Moses is like, I, you know, that's, I, I'm not good at speaking it anymore. Like, I'm just like, it, it is an Ezekiel. Like, I'm going to be really heavy-tongued trying to get that out because it's no longer my first language and I've lost so much of it. And so God comes back to him and it's almost a nod toward Pentecost, I think, a little bit. God comes and rebukes him and is like, oh, who made man's mouth? Who makes a mute or deaf or seeing or blind? And the idea is, and you know, of course it could be that Moses was a stutterer. I'm not definitively saying he wasn't, but I think it makes more sense that he's lost language. And God's like, you know, I can give you the words. And he says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? And he says, is it not I, the Lord? And that's all a nod, like when Jesus comes along, his specific miracles that he does are 
helping the blind. He makes the blind to see. He makes the deaf to hear. He makes the lame to walk. He does all of these things that right here God is saying, who is it that does all that? Well, the, the answer is it's God. Only God can do that. And Jesus, when he does those miracles, what is he claiming? He's answering God's question. Like, well, only the Lord can do that. So therefore, who's Jesus? He's the Lord. And so God is saying, like, you're looking at your own ability again, Moses. You're asking the question, who am I, rather than who is God? And I'm telling you, I can make all of that happen. Stop looking to your own ability and trust my calling. Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But Moses at this point, like he's gone through all of the objections, and he's finally just gets down to brass tacks, and he says, Oh, my Lord, just please send someone else. I don't, I don't want to go. I, have, I do not want to go. And it's at this point, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, notice he does not say, okay, I'm going to lift your calling. <laughs> He's, no, you're, you're going, Moses. I don't care that, you know, like I'm calling you, get ready. But then he makes a little bit of a compromise with Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And so this is pretty remarkable because you have a slave who's going to come out of Egypt and just randomly meet you in the Sinai wilderness. Like, that's a pretty big sign. Um, And by the way, Aaron has been living in Egypt for all of his life, 83 years at this point. He knows Hebrew very well. He can speak fluently. He can be your mouthpiece to make it come a little bit more you know, smoothly to the people. Uh, he shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. In other words, you're going to be the one who brings the word of God, and he's going to be the one who speaks it to the people. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And really, God has kind of given Moses like, okay, I'm going to give someone to speak for you. I'm going to give you this staff to just verify every step of your ministry. Um, And you have Moses who is still so reluctant to carry out God's mission. You ever been at a place where it's like you just feel resentful of ministry and you don't want to accept God's calling into something? Or you feel so wounded by something that has come through ministry that you're like, you know what, I just, I, I don't want to do that again. I'm done. I'm closing the door on that season. It was too hard, too painful. I'm walking away from it. I think there's been, I think I hit one a couple of years ago where it was like, uh, what are you doing in all of this, God? Mm-hmm. Like I felt like, and I don't like to say this on a recording, <laughs> but like where it was like much like, hey, I'm doing all of this for you. Mm-hmm. Like, and it just seems like you're not doing anything. So it was just those moments where maybe Oof. feels yeah. fruitless and you're just, it was just a obviously unjustifiable anger towards God that's like a, man, when are you going to show up kind of thing? Like I'm showing up day in and day out. It doesn't seem like you are. Yeah, and it's a a sinful, short-sighted perspective, but it's every person who's in ministry at some level or not has has felt that. You know, it's like, man, like, come on, show up. We're doing all this stuff. Like, and nobody seems to be getting it. Nobody, lives aren't being changed. I get the same stupid situations and dumb marriage problems and no one grows and no one does what we call them to and no one cares what your word says. Like, ministry can be very defeating to where you're like, I don't want to do it anymore. 
I don't, I don't want to keep going to the well if this is going to be the same playbook over and over again. And Moses knows that well. Like, hey, I, I did something that was really big for you. You know, of course, it was without God's calling. He did it in his own planning. And you didn't show up. You didn't change. You the, the people were turned against me. Now you want me to go to those same people? Like, get out of here. Like, in Moses' rebellion, if we really step back and look at it, everybody can imagine themselves in that situation. It is hard to love people who bite you, <laughs> you know, who who have who've turned on you, who've worn you out, who've taken advantage of you. Um, and I think Moses and his pity party here, you know, just like all of us can throw the pity party, I think Moses very much <laughs> is giving those of us who've been in those those circumstances, you know, God still would not let him go. He would not lift the ministry from him. Um, God still loved Moses and used him mightily, but it's also comforting that when we think Moses, you know, this great, wonderful prophet who's bold and does all these things, like you get to see the clay feet of this great guy. Yeah. That's helpful to me. Maybe, and I, you know, maybe I feel like we're doing the tearing down thing again. <laughs> we're not done. But it really is helpful to see that God is so faithful that he will not allow Moses' short-sightedness to strip Moses of the great life that he is going to have that's tremendously impactful by only being able to see the past failures. That's true. I guess I never thought of it like that. Like the graciousness of God to put up with Moses so that Moses can be great in a sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think of the Mount of Transfiguration, like when Moses is appearing in glory next to Jesus to the apostles, like, what is that Moses thinking now? Yeah. You know, when if he looks back at this and thinks, you know, I remember when I was telling you to buzz off, like, God, I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want to do this. Now everybody on the planet knows the name of Moses. He had this tremendously impactful life, and he went kicking and screaming, and God would not let him say no, <laughs> you know? And that's just the kindness of God to ignore our own petty, childish temper yeah. tantrums, yeah. <laughs> thankfully. Yeah, because the only person who would have missed out on something is Moses. That's right. If God chose another, God was still going to save the Hebrews. He was that's still right. going to deliver them. It was just, will Moses get to be a part of this? Yeah. And I think for us, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, we might not have the burning bush experience or hear an audible voice of God, but I think all of us have that the spirit inside of us, you know, the Holy Spirit that goes to work in turmoil when we say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not doing it anymore. That the spirit will not give you peace when you're in rebellion against his mission. It'll, it'll just sit there and eat at you. And probably there's probably some people who are hearing this going, oh no, <laughs> he's, he's doing that right now. I, I've given up on this ministry. I've turned my back on this. I've lost hope in that. And now the spirit is saying, no, you're not allowed to. You're on mission and for this whole time that I have you and your little temper tantrums and your own, like Moses got really hurt, real pain. I've been in ministry. I know hurt. I know real pain. God does not let you walk away from the ministry. He loves you too much. He's calling you to take the wounds just like he did and press in and keep loving people, which is really hard. Yeah. I think even when you use ministry here, it's more than just, obviously we are paid to do ministry, but mm -hmm. even just thinking about, broken relationships that people probably feel are too far gone. Yeah. You know, there's thousands of examples that we can put in that it's not just limited to working at a church. Yeah. I mean, there, you look at our, our culture for that matter. 
there's so many things that you could say, oh, it's too far gone. That's a losing battle. That's a hopeless cause. You don't have permission to say that. God has called you to share the gospel, to, to invite people to Alpha, to talk to them about Jesus, to, to be salt and light in a culture that's rotting out on the vine. Like Just because it looks like it is a lost cause and a losing battle and a, and a futile errand, you know, a fool's errand, okay, who cares? God has not given you permission to say, I'm no longer going to be on mission for Moses, I can guarantee you when God came and said, hey, you're going to go confront Pharaoh, Moses was like, yeah, that's going to go yeah. well. No, like you got to remember this is the God who turns the staff into the serpent and back into the staff. This is a supernatural God that we worship. And if you lose sight of that, well, you'll despair and you'll give up on ministry. But if you believe in a God of miracles, then you are always holding out hope that he's going to move. And you can't look at your own inabilities, your own failures, and say, oh, God is capped. I should just give up now. You're not allowed to. Yeah. And that's hard. And sometimes that stinks, <laughs> speaking from experience. All right, so, so Moses then goes back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said to him, hey, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And even that, it's not. gosh, like God... He doesn't run back to Jethro and God just appeared to me in a burning bush and he's given me this great mission to liberate two million people from the tyranny of Pharaoh and I'm going to confront him and God has promised to be with me. Like you can tell, Moses is almost like, I don't believe anything's going to happen and I don't want to look like a fool. I'm not sure what this is all about. So I just want to go back and check on my brothers to see if they're still alive. That's how Moses summarizes the mission God has just given him. <laughs> like, do you see the heart of Moses here? Like it is... It's reluctant and it's wounded, but he, he's not like, Jethro, you wouldn't believe it. Like even Moses has cynicism of this call. You just get that impression. I don't know how else to read that. Like, wouldn't you go home and be like, you wouldn't believe. You also think he would be trying to sell Jethro and let him go. Yeah. Like this is the worst excuse for someone to be <laughs> Maybe like, he wanted Jethro to be like, nope, you're not allowed. Yeah, yeah. Like it doesn't sound like a good excuse. Like, no, I need a shepherd for my herds, and you're the guy right now. You can't just walk out <laughs> on me. So this is such a lame excuse. Yeah, it is. It like is. The real, the real mission, I think Jethro would be like, whoa, I don't know if that's true, but that sounds crazy enough. But don't, go. don't we do that all the time as well? Like you know that God has you, you know, go talk to that person about Jesus, and we try to, to boil down the supernatural so that we don't look like a weirdo, you know? Yep. You know, um, I want, I wanted to talk to you about something, you know, I think Moses is almost embarrassed at just how amazing this experience was. And he doesn't want to look stupid to Jethro. So he dismisses the whole element of the supernatural to be like, I'm going to go check and see if they're still alive. But Jethro being a, being a godly guy says, all right, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. He gives them an assurance like, hey, the Pharaoh who was trying to kill you, he finally died. So Moses took his wife and his sons, he's got two now, Gershom and Eliezer, had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let my people go. And that's a whole nether 
big thing. Uh, when the word harden in Hebrew can can all, it has a connotation that it's like getting hard. It's 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 weighty. It's it's like a rock. And so if you were to say that to an Egyptian, they did not want their hearts to be hard because they believed in the afterlife that their heart would be weighed against what was called the feather of ma'at, the feather of truth. And if their heart was heavier than the feather, then they were forever judged. They were condemned by the gods of Egypt. And so every time you hear God hardening or weighting down Pharaoh's heart, the Egyptians would have heard he's condemned in the sight of their gods. And the Hebrew, it has this connotation of it's going to make them stubborn. And so, you know, I've heard people say, like, why would God do this? And the answer is every human heart on planet Earth would grow hard and bitter apart from God's grace, whether it's, you know, the fact that we believe in him or just what's called common grace, where God is working even in unbelievers to make them kind or, you know, to love their pets or their kids or whatever, like, there's common grace that extends to all of us that, that makes us good. But if God were to withdraw all of his goodness, even his common grace from hearts, they would grow utterly wicked and hard and awful. And so in a sense, what this is is saying, it's, it's not that God is saying, ha-ha, I'm going to make you evil. It's saying by withdrawing my common grace from you, it's going to reveal that by yourself you are evil. Um, it's almost like Laura was using this in illustration last night, like Play-Doh hardens if you don't keep playing with it, you know, because it just sits there. It doesn't have an outside force massaging it or whatever. The same happens with, with humans and God. Like if God is not working with us, we will become hardened. Um, and that's kind of the, the connotation here. He said, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So that's going to be important later when we get to the last of the plagues. Um, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so you have Pharaoh who's threatening to kill all the children of Israel, right? The firstborn sons, the, the young babies. And so God is now saying, no, 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 I'm the one who has power of life. You let my people go, or I'll take your firstborn. When Moses actually gets in front of Pharaoh, does he say the thing about killing the firstborn son? Because yeah, I'm like, oh, I forget that God says it's going to happen. Like, he's going to do... Like, we're always shocked that God's like, kills the firstborn sons. Yeah, I don't think he does until you get to the 10th plague. Okay. Like, to my memory, I could be wrong, but I don't... I mean, it would be in the, the next chapter or two. Yeah. Um, but it's not until you get to where it's the 10th plague and Moses is pleading, you know, all of the firstborn of Egypt will die if you harden your heart again. And Pharaoh's yeah, like, just, bring it. I just forgot that that's part of the playbook. Like yeah. it was already told that this is going to happen. You, you see the way that it's being set up. Like God is saying, Israel is my firstborn son. And you get the sense like, this is my, my child, the church, my sons, my daughters, this is family to me. And then he says, you know, this is going to risk your firstborn son. So everything is in this generational covenant communications, right? And so it's not a left-hand turn, even though it feels like a really wild left-hand turn where we're going now. Uh, one of the most confusing passages in the Bible, uh, I think, and it's where all of a sudden God is going to kill Moses and it feels like it's out of nowhere, right? Yeah. 
It says, verse 24, this is a wild story, adult ears maybe. I mean, you can make the call. But it says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. And you're like, whoa, what? Yeah. Like, why? Did, was there, are there like verses that got deleted? Like, what happened that all of a sudden God wants to put Moses to death? It says, then Zipporah took a flint. Now, in the ancient world, there were these rocks that were especially all over this area of the Midianite wilderness and Sinai wilderness, where you see flint stones that have these jagged but really sharp edges that they would make into knives. And so, so she finds this flint, which is just horrific. <laughs> You know, she takes a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and it says, and she touched Moses's feet with it. And you're like, what is going on? <laughs> what? All right, so there is a lot going on here. And, and she, she says to, in this passage in the ESV, it says, she touched Moses's feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so I've got issues with how this is translated in the ESV, NIV, and a lot of the translations. And so I, I would I would advise you if if you hear somebody who's, you know, Joe Schmo pastor who says, I take issue with the way this is translated, like all the alarm bells and your brain should be going off because ninety-nine times out of a hundred, you know, you trust the translators because they know the language way better than than Joe Schmo podcast guy does right like it just shouldn't happen every time every single week yeah they're like, oh, the bible's translation's wrong but this one even some of the notes you'll see in the text where they make like uh, notes on this so where it says that zipporah all of a sudden just cut her son's foreskin and touched moses's feet with it there's there's a note that you'll see right next to moses where the name moses is not in the text it's literally and she touched his feet. So it could be either Gershom, the son, or it could be Moses. Um, the, and the Bible translates it because the next part, it says, she said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, this is also problematic, but if you do like a word search in Logos, you can see that, that the, the word bridegroom, that's translated bridegroom, the Hebrew word there is hatan, and it literally means my daughter's husband. It's, it's a son-in-law is, is the language there. Now, that, that gets confusing because Gershom is not a son-in-law and neither is Moses. And so the translators are looking at this going, all right, first off, we don't know why God all of a sudden is angry and all he wants to kill Moses and then Zipporah's taking knives and circumcising children and touching bloody foreskin to feet and making declarations of bridegroom or son-in-law status of blood. So let me, let me give you my theory of what's going on here. All right. First off, first point, let's not skip over the fact that Moses is not circumcising his children. Hmm. What does that mean? The one covenant sign that's given to Abraham where it's like, this is my covenant with all generations going forward. There's no law of Moses. There's no Ten Commandments yet. The only sign of covenant that you have to go on is circumcision. That's what marks you as being a part of the people of God. And when Moses has his children, boys... He says, I'm not doing it. Now, that again goes to show you just how much bitterness in ministry that Moses has. It's either that or he is just totally apathetic toward the faith. Yes. And I think it's this bitterness, like those people turned on me. God did not save me. I've been 40 years, and I think it's, I, 
my interpretation, which I can't say is definitive, is that Moses is very bitter, and I'm not going to circumcise my children. And so now God has said, I am going to use you to deliver my people, and Moses is now willingly going off into ministry, but he's going off into ministry as a notable hypocrite. I'm Okay, I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to be the prophet. I'm going to be the one who goes and calls these people to salvation and freedom, and I'm going to be the one that you bring the law through, and you're going to use me as a mighty prophet, but I'm not doing what I'm preaching. And so he's on his way to go be this great man of God, and God says, "You forget, like, are you forgetting something? And Moses is still obstinate, marching off toward Egypt, and it's like, okay, I will kill you before I let you make a mockery of ministry. Like he takes this very seriously. If you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to be somebody who's going off to tell everyone else how they should live or to be God's vehicle of salvation, and you're in secret defiance and resentment and everything, dude, take a break. Step away from ministry. Like figure that out, but do it from a place where you've got like a sincere heart and you can say, hey, I believe what I'm about to preach. But Moses is doing this from a place of hypocrisy. And it's not even him who ends up doing this. Like it's Zipporah, the Midianite, you know, daughter of a priest of Midian, and who ends up doing this. And so Moses has a lot of healing, I think, that needs to happen here. But anyway, so now let me tell you what I think is going on with the whole touching of the skin and everything else. In Midianite culture, we believe that they had, do you remember how I told you Egyptian priests would be circumcised as adults, mm-hmm. but only Hebrews circumcised babies? Well, in Midianite culture, they had a, a ceremony, and this would be wild, where when you married someone's daughter, their father-in-law would circumcise you, and then through this ritual, they would say, you are now a hatan of blood to me, meaning you are now my son-in-law through covenant by marrying my daughter. I now become one of your fathers, and you are a son-in-law of blood to me. And so... When my theory is, now they had, they had been holding off and maybe she was going to wait for him to get married to where in the Midianite culture that's going to happen and maybe he gets circumcised when he gets married. And now you have Zipporah, who before he gets married or has a new father, right, who comes and circumcises him, takes the, the foreskin and says, you are now a bridegroom of blood. Now think son-in-law, because that's what the word hatan means. You now have a new father by what just happened. This marks the fact that you have a new father. Now how would that make sense? You're being brought into a covenant that grants you a new father. It's a it's a new home. It, like I, I think what is happening here is Zipporah is recognizing we, we messed up. Like if circumcision means that you're brought into a, the family of God, Zipporah is saying, we're going to skip all the Midianite traditions that give you a new human father-in-law when you get married, and now I'm going to say, you're a son-in-law of blood to me. You have a new father, and now we are in covenant together even though you have not been married. And that makes way more sense of this passage. Did I, did I explain that clearly? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes way more sense than just reading the passage itself. So. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it would have to. <laughs> you know, just, just hey, I'm going to suddenly chop off foreskin and touch bloody skin to feet. But I think that's showing you that Zipporah has faith. You know, here's Zipporah interceding almost on behalf of Moses, and she's the one who carries out the circumcision and 
the Lord, it says, verse 26, so he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. And so we have no context for why bridegroom of blood would be associated with circumcision, but in the Midianite culture, a wedding, becoming a son-in-law of the new father, and circumcision were, were intertwined. And so that makes way more sense to me. But again, Moses is MIA on the raising up covenant children front. It's just interesting that he's, he's going to become so faithful and so good and so full of faith as the chapters go on. But to see him coming out of the gates with so much failure and <laughs> lack of faith is, is both crazy to me and also encouraging because um, the Lord called him in that condition. He didn't wait for Moses to become this great man of faith that's all fired up to go on mission and say, all right, you're my guy. He yep. finds the guy that's chewed up, beat up, you know, and and now it's time for him to to go on mission. Yeah, I think it's an interesting look at Zipporah, too, that even she sees that they're leaving the Midianite world and now to be the deliverer of the Hebrew people. They have to go all in. Yeah. Like, hey, these people are going to be our family now. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it is. It is very much a, we're going on mission. We need to walk. We need to walk the talk. And it makes Moses look even worse. It does. It when does. you see someone who's faithful to God, who seems to be like, she should just be trying to figure all this out. He should have it figured out. And here she is just being like, yeah. I'm going to handle this. Yeah, he was circumcised as, as a baby. He knows this stuff. He's chosen deliberately to say, either I'm going to acquiesce to this new Midianite culture or he's saying, I'm so angry at the Hebrew faith and the Hebrew people that I'm done. And I, I think that's far more it when you see how obstinate and rebellious and I don't want to go and I don't, I, those people aren't going to believe me. It's like you, you just get that sense, especially given the background. So verse 27. And even the, uh, not to belabor the point, but that this could have been a backup plan for him. Like, hey, if this doesn't work out for us in Egypt, we're just going to come back and our kids will be culturally Midianites and they'll be ready to get married at this point. And so, like, if all this doesn't figure itself out, I can just come back to nice, easy, comfortable life as a Midianite. Yeah. I mean, even even in the way that he talked with Jethro, it's a way of not going all in. Yeah. Like, you know, we're just going to go check, if, check and see if they're alive. Like it's a he's, quick trip. He's not talking about this all-in ministry that is going to radically change his life forever. <laughs> you know, he's leaving himself lots of outs. Yeah. Which is, which is just interesting, that the Lord will not let him go. He insists on using him, and that's just awesome. So verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And you got to think, like, that's pretty wild. You wonder what that conversation's like. But Moses is like, I, you know, I, I need, I, I'm slow of speech and all this stuff. And he's like, I'll give you Aaron. And the, if you're out in the Sinai wilderness and all of a sudden Aaron shows up, it's like, okay, it was not the burrito. <laughs> you know, I didn't have a, a hallucination. Aaron is now showing up. Like God has been faithful to follow every single thing that he has promised to do. He's given sign after sign. Verse 28, And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of, of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. 
And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. And this is going to be about the best you'll see from the people of Israel. (laughs) Fairly warm response at first. But I mean, it's like you just imagine Moses being so hesitant. And when they hear and can believe and see supernaturally that this is real and that God has really heard our prayers, they just bow their heads and they're in absolute joy. And now when when the rubber meets the road and the uh, the the plagues start and Pharaoh clamps down, they're going to turn on Moses like people are so good at, yep. you know, who turn on their leaders uh, and shepherds and bite when something hurts. Um, but for now, God has been faithful to every single thing that he promised Moses. And here we are. This is going to mark the beginning of the great contest between Yahweh, the God of Moses, who's coming to overthrow slavery He's coming to overthrow death and bondage and all of that stuff and to conquer the serpent king. And this is going to mark the beginning of the great contest because that's the way that this story is being framed. And we'll get into that as we jump into the plagues. But that's what's coming, a great war between this new, relatively unknown God of the Hebrews. And it's like, what kind of God is he as people are enslaved like I mean, he would have been mocked as a god going up against the greatest empire with the most famous gods in the world. That's the battle that's shaping up. And God is going to kick some booty. Spoiler. Yep, yeah, yeah, spoiler. So anyway, that is Exodus 4. Any any closing thoughts? No, just you're welcome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Exodus 4, it's a good one. It's a weird one. Uh, but man, does it... Like if you are in a place of ministry burnout or you've been through the ringer or you've been injured, like this is the place where you see the heart of God for those people. Like he never gives up on you and he will He will bring you sometimes kicking and screaming back into ministry because he is too kind to let you waste your life. And so if you're out there and you're feeling that maybe the Holy Spirit is tugging at you or, or causing turmoil inside you to to jump back into ministry where you've been burned before. That's the way he rolls. And so I'd encourage you, do some wrestling. Get back in the game. You know, this is eternally significant stuff. Allow the Lord to use you. And so we'll leave it there for this week. Join us next week as we jump into Exodus chapter 5 and the great war, the great contest gets underway. A lot of fun. See you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.